episode 151 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Podcast Network. I'm James Linger, joined today by Paul Noonan and Ryan Topp. Brad's on vacation, but we got Ryan back with us. How you doing? I'm doing better. Last week at this time, I was in the ER getting looked at for a pinched nerve in my neck, which is getting better slowly. We're making progress, but it's it was a uh, it was a pretty weird, sucky week. Sleeping has been very, very difficult. Yeah, uh, off the injured list today, though. So good to go. Get a few at bats and we'll we'll be fine. Right. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I'll get a little addled toward the end of this thing and start saying some some nonsense. I'm not on any painkillers, though, so that? we'll keep you on a pitch count. It'll be all right. <laughs> yep. Uh, reminder, we are sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing. You know their great beers like Block Party and their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. I actually picked up their new Norm Ale this weekend and I'm enjoying it right now, actually, as we speak. The next time you're in Madison, stop by their brewery on Kinsman Boulevard on the east side or just look for it at your local grocery store. You can also get a 20% discount on some Carbon 4 merch online just by listening to this podcast. Go to Carbon4.com and use our promo code MKE Tailgate when you check out. That's Carbon4 Beer Brilliance. You can also support our podcast network at Patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. Our ball and glove and above patrons get the Minor League Extra podcast with Ryan and Brad. And they actually just dropped a new episode this past week talking to Carlos Colazzo from Baseball America. Ryan, how did that go? It was really good. Carlos is their draft expert. And so we were able to get him on and talk. Really, we focused a lot on the draft and not just the Brewers guys, but also just sort of the draft as a whole and what it was like to do it this year, what he sees coming for next year. And then, you know, we talked a lot about Garrett Mitchell because Baseball America absolutely loves the guy. They had the Brewers as the number one uh, team in terms of value added through the draft. Uh, Wow. So, yeah, well, not not in terms of overall talent, but in terms of where they were picking. Because when you okay. start by picking at 20, you, obviously you don't have access to that top talent the way other teams do. But when you take the what was Baseball America's sixth ranked guy at 20, you're going to you know rack up some value there. Nice. Absolutely. So it's definitely worth a listen. Uh, be sure to sign up and check it out. In the meantime, we are going to be playing a clip of that towards the end of this episode. So stick around for that. Uh, when you become a patron, you also get Paul's reporting as eligible Packers mini pods, and you get question priority here on this podcast every week. Uh, so looking at where the Brewers are, I guess, compared to last week, they you know, had a had a series against the Twins we'd rather not talk about. So we're going to focus on the good. Uh, they've, as we record this on Sunday morning, they've actually taken two of the first three against the Cubs this weekend at Wrigley. Fun fact, the Cubs have three losses at home all year. All three of those are the Brewers. So now the Brewers are 9-10 and 10 heading into this Sunday. I guess we'll start off. Uh, Paul, are you more encouraged than you were maybe a week ago? Uh, definitely. I mean, it, they're playing much better. And I do think they're starting to get some some roster turn and some idea of kind of who's going to stick where. Um, so I'm definitely encouraged. The, uh, the best part is just Yelich is starting to come around and, and get himself rounded into form. Um, you know, slumps with him aren't going to last forever. And they really do need him to compete. He's been much, much, much better lately. He looks kind of like his, his old self. So that's good. Some of the other guys, too, are starting to hit a little bit more, too. Obviously, Eels playing pretty well. They got Urias up, which is, I think, an enormous help and has already helped with the bat. Um, more than I expected, frankly. Um, so I, I, I think there's reasons to be optimistic. Also, just because of some of the cancellations and things, they've played a really hard schedule so far. And yeah. to be to be where they are after just a steady diet of Cubs and Twins for a while, 
is, is pretty good, honestly. I, I kind of like how their prospects going forward um, from what they've done so far. Well, and they've played a particularly difficult slate of pitching. They've seen a yes. lot of tough pitchers, which is a big part of why the hitting has been slow. When you're facing uh, some of these Cubs guys that are really, really good, and then the that trio that the Reds threw out there in that series was really tough. They got a little bit of a break with the Pirates, obviously, but... Yeah, the everybody gets a break with the pirates. They're the yes. pirates. Yeah, they are the pirates. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it is nice to see that, and it is particularly nice to see the bullpen settle a little bit. That yeah, we saw that that run on the Friday night game where they were able to shut down with uh, first Peralta and then Devin Williams and Josh Hader. Yeah, all looked pretty good. Yep. Uh, it it does sort of show the the a little bit of the limitation though because none of those guys then were available to pitch on Saturday and they were still able to make it through they they did give up a, a one run lead but i don't think you can really fault them too much for that they had to you know hold a, a one run lead for what was it four innings yes and they did give uh, up and, just the one run uh, uh, that's true it was when they, as soon as they threw a canable in there i was kind of like uh, maybe not the best spots, but it, they also were a little bit hamstrung by having pitched everybody the day before. So it was a tough spot just generally strategically. And there's yeah. no guarantee that any other guy that was available wasn't going to give up the same thing. But I, I think that right. that's performance was it more impressive because they didn't have all the big guns available and uh council still managed to nav- navigate his way through it mostly unscathed. So that, that was a, that was encouraging. And also I am still annoyed at at hater true closer, but if Freddie Peralta is gonna <laughs> if Freddie Peralta is gonna just be like Josh Hader fireman anyway, I don't care as much, which seems like it might be the case. That Friday night was crazy. Yeah, yep. I mean, he did come in for he was gonna get four outs. Like they did bring him for a slightly extended run, and I think had things fallen a little bit differently, they might have gone to him even a little bit earlier. Like he might have been five outs had it not been, but we saw it took him. 38 pitches, I think, something like that, to get through those four outs. So he wasn't particularly sharp, especially in the eighth. When he came back for the ninth, he really did look good, which was nice because we often see the opposite with him, where he looks really good to start. And when he comes back for that second inning, things can get a little bit shaky. But this was the opposite of that. So that was that was positive. But that's true. The off speed pitch he finished the game off with was also fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that was took him 35 pitches to find the slider, but he finally found it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, when he's locating that slider in the zone, it's really pretty much game over for the the other side, unless he's just going to like leave a fastball in a bad location. and Somebody's going to guess right on it. Like that's that's basically how Josh Hader gets beat is is leaving a bad fastball someplace uh, because if he's locating that that slider, there's not much people can do against him. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think you saw both with Hayter and with Peralta, especially with Javi Baez up, they did not give him a fastball in the zone, uh, which I think was a pretty smart call. Uh, yeah, Freddy's why would you? Slider, especially on Friday, looked amazing. Uh, the only fastball Peralta gave Javi Baez was one up and in and that he still swung at and yep, he went slider low and away. That was, I think, the the standout at bat, I think, for me in that in that stretch there. But uh Peralta looked amazing. He had he ended up uh what getting six outs, five of them were strikeouts, and he had 13 whiffs. Like that is about as dominant as you could get out of the bullpen. That 13 whiffs, yeah, that is remarkable amount of bat missing in that short a period of time and that many pitches that's really really something and that's against a lineup that doesn't swing and miss a, a whole ton right 
Like yeah, that we is, saw that in the first series. They make a ton of contact, and they lay except for Javi. They, they lay off stuff out of the zone. So um, he he is like the perfect Javi Baez pitcher, um, just because Javi will swing at anything that's even remotely close to the zone, and that's how Freddie pitches. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a great performance. Um, I, I know that he also you know he's streaky. He blows up sometimes, but I'm very encouraged by his early bullpen work. Freddie's been been really good. This is this is a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll get back to the bullpen in a minute, but also uh, kind of good signs. As Paul mentioned before, the offense seems to kind of be waking up, at least uh, when it comes to Christian Yelich. Uh, the overall numbers are still going to look a little bit down just because of how cold he was to start the year. But in August, he's got a 1070 OPS. His WRC plus in August is 182. So basically back to being same old Christian Yelich. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Paul's favorite, Justin <laughs> Smoke, hitting uh, 360 in the last week with six runs driven in since we yeah. uh, reverse jinxed him last Sunday. So He does yeah. have his OPS Plus on the season now up to 74. Last podcast, it was 51. <laughs> so um, that's, that's a good jump. I can't, can't knock that. Still sucks it's, overall. It, but It's still yeah. below Keston Hira's OPS Plus somehow. But uh, yeah, that's, that's good improvement. So. I don't mind the idea of having him basically treated as a platoon player, even though, yes, he is a switch hitter. You can get Jerko in there against right-handers, or I'm sorry, against left-handers, and then that opens up the left side of the infield to get, like, an even better defender, though Jerko really has looked good at third. Like, we has made some plays this year, but Urias should still be a better defender at third base than Jerko, you would think, right? Like, that... There, there's more flexibility there and a little bit more range. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit, I think. Speaking of Jerko, actually, I'm just going to skip ahead and get to our first Patreon question from Asilatam. He's asking, is it time to start mixing things up a little bit by seeing more Jed Jerko either at third, like you guys were mentioning, (laughs) or first, or maybe even in middle relief after his (laughs) inning pitched the other night? I mean, probably yes. It's it's hard to... So it just really depends on what you think of Jerko, um, generally speaking, but if he can hold down third base defensively, which looks like he can, um, you know, he's certainly a hot bat you can ride and that's totally fine. I mean, I certainly prefer him getting at bats um, to a lot of guys on the team. So that's fine. Um, But again, like let's not get overexcited about some small sample size success too. Like Jericho is still, still in the group of guys who are really available for a good reason. So yeah, if you want to ride the hot hand, totally fine. But um, I do think overall you still want to sort of mix and match platoons with all of the guys they have to mix and match platoons with, um, you know, move your race over there for defensive reasons when it's appropriate to do so. Don't fall in love with them and don't fall out of love with them too quick. Um, it's, it's nice. He's looked good over there and it's nice. His bat's been good lately. It's nice. He, he dominated on the mound, but uh, you know, he's, he's still Jed Jericho and it's all said and done. That is the key with playing the hot hand is you still need to mix in. I know everybody really wants to do that, especially like Manny Pena has a two home run game. Well, why aren't we seeing Manny Pena every day? Why is Omar Narvaez still in there? Well, because Omar Narvaez is a better hitter than Manny Pena, right? Like that's why Omar Narvaez is still getting at the moment. One is hot and one is cold, (laughs) but you continue to get looks for the other guy because you don't base all your decisions on what happens in one game or, you know, a handful of games, you, you have to try to balance it out. And yes, you do shade playing time more. And we saw Manny Pena get a little bit more at run maybe than he would have after that, but he's not going to start every single game at that point. You don't completely abandon Narvaez. 
you maybe give Pena a little bit more run and then start mixing it in. I, I do think with with Jerko, he's a he's a strange one because if you look at his history, he was a, a solidly above average hitter from 2016, mm-hmm. 17, 18. I mean, you're looking at his OPS pluses yep. those years. He was 111, 112, 108. So he's about 10 percent. Yeah, really actually pretty steady, about 10 percent better than the league average hitter, which as a, a third baseman who can pick it over there, that's pretty solid. Right. That, that really does right. work. So I, I think that, yeah, last year he had the down year. And this year, so far, obviously, 156, that's, that's well above where he's likely to settle over a, a long yeah. term. I mean, that's 23 plate yeah. appearances, but he's, he's hit well the last couple of weeks, <laughs> at least. Yeah, but it does, I think that we're seeing what he is now is more indicative than what he was last year. I think he's he is a slightly above average hitter, and I mean we're he's only thirty one years old. Like he's not in the a, a an age related decline. That wasn't what it was last year. So we're not looking at that. So I think that it it does you know it's justified to get him in the lineup on a more regular basis. But that doesn't mean you abandon other guys. You're still working in Smoke Urias. I think we've we've already seen them starting to lean uh, towards giving Keston here a couple days a week at uh, DH. Right. Yep. So mm-hmm. that's already happening, though. That will, depending on how Ryan Braun looks, if you want to get him in the lineup more on a daily basis, though, they have shown some willingness now to get him in the outfield because he played right field on Saturday. Right. Yep, he did. Yeah. So they are they're still willing to put him in the field. So he's not going to be a pure DH. But I think that that's kind of the the rotation they're going to run. And look. We we did talk about this early on that we thought Ryan Braun was going to get a lot of run at DH, but we really should have been a little bit more skeptical of that because, of course, Craig Council was yeah. always going to run a rotation at DH so that guys would get rest and, and time off. And, mm-hmm. it, of course, that was always going to be the way this was handled. Like, should have seen it a little bit more clearly ahead of time. Yep. Yeah, I think with Braun at DH, I kind of maybe felt that way a little bit more. Like when we were doing our prop bets, I think I was probably on the lower end of believing where he'd be in the DH just because, you know, smoke was a little shaky at first base and you didn't really know how the outfield situation was going to shake out. And especially now with Lorenzo Kane opting out and uh, Ben Gamble kind of looking more like Ben Gamble recently. I think it's it's a lot more likely that we see some more Braun in right field uh, as long as his back and stuff can hang on or hold up to it. Right. You know, I don't know if we see him more than once or twice a week out there, but um, I, I do think that we're going to see him play the field probably more than we thought we were. I think definitely um, now that, that apparently Abisayel is the everyday center fielder for the most part. Um, yeah. I, I that's, that's probably the biggest surprise of the season so far. I think we all had just kind of assumed Keon would be up at some point to mix in with Gamble. And uh, nope. <laughs> looks like they're just going to ride Garcia out there and get the bat in there. And that'll get Braun into the field, I think, much more frequently than we otherwise would have thought. Yeah, especially as long as Gamble is really struggling. He was yeah. going into Saturday's game. He was two for his last 32 
I mean, it was he was right. really, really struggling and not not looking good. And you've seen both him and Garcia struggle in the outfield, not just in center field when they've been out there, but they've struggled some in the corners a little bit, which was surprising. Like Gamble made a really horrific misplay at the wall on sure what was that, Friday, Friday night. night. It that was literally terrible. hit him square in the glove and that yeah that, that can't that, that really can't happen great. like that's yeah that's right. bad and so i do think i would like to see and i said this on twitter i'm like you know i think it was after that lauer game where lauer didn't really get lit up like it was he gave up kind of a, a more soft contact than anything else and death by singles yeah death by singles but he wasn't missing bats which was mm-hmm. what made him so good when he uh you know sliced through the Cubs lineup that first time we saw him at Wrigley on that Sunday game. So it really was like it was a death by a thousand cuts, like you said. And I at that point was just like, bring up Keon so that we don't feel like we're hemorrhaging runs in the outfield because it was it was really ugly. But I don't know. I mean, the it's not like Keon Broxton is an unknown to them. They know what he is and what he's capable of. And the fact that they haven't called on him like that has to mean something, right? Like they have to be looking at it. Like he's either providing some value to them in Appleton or he, they just don't think that like the way he's hitting right now or the way he's seeing the ball would translate to being, you know, good. Cause when Keon is good, yes, he's, he's really good with the bat. Like we've seen that, but when he's bad, he's every bit as bad as cold gamble, you know? Yep. Yeah. I think you'd want to have the defense out there, especially, you know, watch it me watching this Cubs series a little bit more the last few days. Garcia's fine, but he's still taking some weird routes and he's got fine straight line speed as Brad likes to remind us, but it takes him a while to get going. So if he takes a bad route, there's just no way he's going to get to a ball very quickly. Nope. He's a big lad. It it takes time to get that moving. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, (laughs) <laughs> takes a while to get what six three two forty moving pretty quickly, right? So, uh, it'll be interesting to see how long they're they're willing to see how this defense shakes out. But yeah, to, I I think I agree with you guys. The the outfield defense has got kind of been concerning, especially since at least I felt it was such a strength heading into uh, this season. Obviously, that change the the math changes with Kane out and all that, but. Uh, it's not an area where they can really afford to give up runs, especially considering, you know, two or three fifths of the starting rotation kind of relies on contact that heavily. Um, so I, I don't know, I guess, I guess they'll keep playing the hot hand, but also, you know, that that's kind of gambling in itself. I don't know if you guys have read uh, Keith Law's latest book, The Inside Game. He kind of talks about the fallacy of riding the hot hand too. Yeah. Uh, and and part of that is it's just impossible to predict. Like, sure, a guy can have a hot week, but then it, it, it's so hard to predict what's going to happen when you start putting him in the lineup and then inevitably he cools and you can't guess the next guy who gets hot. So it's much more reactionary than I think you would like to be. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. so like in a 60 game season, sure, you want to ride the hot hand, but it you need to also kind of guess correctly on that as well. Right. <laughs> well, it's like the myth of Vinnie Johnson, right? The microwave, the the whole idea that he was this guy that when he was hot, you would just let him go and he would like light it up. Well, if you actually did any sort of rigorous analysis of like even the guy who is supposedly like the biggest streak shooter in the NBA, if you looked at it, if he made his last three-pointer or missed it 
it didn't affect what was likely to happen on the next one at all. Statistically, like it, it actually was basically just a fallacy. Like the the whole idea of the hot hand can really be, yeah, just like a total myth. Now, I don't completely buy it. I think that especially like with baseball, it, it can be mechanical often. So when guys are struggling with their mechanics, that can be a real reason why they they're struggling or if their mechanics are locked in, like if they're really hitting it, that can be part of why they're, they're particularly good. But I think we, we tend to ascribe more meaning to that than there really is there. Nope. Completely agree. Right. Absolutely. Well, I guess speaking of hot hands, Luis Urias is one at the moment. (laughs) He finally got called up in the last week. He's had a really solid first week at the Brewers. He's gone six for 15. He went uh, three for four Saturday night, drove in a couple of runs kind of really providing a boost to that infield offense, I guess. Ryan, how excited are you to see him kind of there? And uh, I guess, how do you see the Brewers using him long-term? They've already kind of moved him around a little bit. Yeah, I mean, long-term, I think he is going to be a shortstop for them, but they're still going to mix and match with Arcia because Arcia is clearly still the superior defender to Urias at this point. So long-term... I think he's going to get in a lot at shortstop. I do think we need to pump the brakes a little bit because the the criticism of uh, of of Urias from all throughout his entire prospect status was, yeah, he's probably going to make good contact and he's probably going to give you a batting average. But if you look at the other stuff right now, he's hitting 400, 438, 400. So he has no extra base hits. His six hits are all singles. singles. Yep. Yep. And he's taken one walk. Uh, Granted, he he only has the one strikeout. So like he is making contact and there is value in that. And I think it does help kind of balance this lineup out a little bit. So I'm not I'm not totally ragging on that. But I do think you're looking at a guy that the, the concern always was with him. Could he would he be a star hitter? If it's just empty batting average now, even right. if it's even if it's a 320 batting average, if you're not taking walks and you're not hitting for power, that's a fairly limited player unless you're also getting really good defense up the middle from him. So it there's there's sort of a, a ceiling on that value unless he starts to show more power, which granted is a thing that he was working on and was was trying to push towards last year, which may have actually jacked with his swing a little bit and caused some problems. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out, but yeah, I mean, it, the, the empty batting average thing for him could be a concern long-term in terms of him being really valuable. He, the one thing I've been impressed seeing him so far is he does seem to um, not swing at stuff outside the zone very often. So um, he, he's a good, like com- contrast him with, uh, with Matthias when he was up here, um, I think that was a, a real just bit of luck of having balls drop in. Um, Urias certainly has some of that, but he's also like not punished, but he's made good swings at p- pitches that are good to hits. I'm actually a little surprised he hasn't popped at least a double yet, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think he looks like a more advanced hitter than some of the other guys they've had kind of cycle through the team so far. So I'm at least encouraged by that, but yeah, six singles is always going to be quite a bit of luck no matter what, because <laughs> they have to fall in. Um, but um, I like he he looks like a, a better player. I'm just happy to see like not Logan Morrison cycling through anymore because in his limited time he looked quite bad to me. So, 
Uh, I, I'm optimistic about him. I hope he develops some power. But even if he doesn't, he looks like he's got a good approach. And I, I like that about anybody who has one. Well, yeah, and we also get the added benefit of him trolling Bleacher Nation. So <laughs> also that <laughs> making him making him crazy with his his contact because you know I guess was... baseballs aren't supposed to ever fall in against the Cubs is what I'm not. learning. Like yeah, that apparently isn't supposed to happen. So. An important thing to with Urias too to remember is I know you know Ryan mentioned as he was coming up that was kind of the one knock on him as a prospect that he wasn't hitting for power but at the same time he's also coming off a broken bone in his wrist this spring it's Good it's point. easy to forget that was you know eons ago in the, yep. in this COVID time warp of a world but well and speaking of COVID he had that too and he had that too and right he so had he's two. had a lot yeah. of setbacks. Uh, it's kind of been a journey just to get to this point, but (laughs) with the wrist injury specifically, you know, that's known to sap power. So I guess maybe it's not too surprising, even though we're now five or six months away from that happening. But uh, it, I think that's maybe a consideration too, when you look at the lack of power, but also we're fretting over 15 at bats, you know, you could pop two home runs today and be fine. Uh, now that I said that, we probably just jinxed him and he'll go over. Yeah, we're supposed to do this the <laughs> other way, James. Like last week, yeah, you guys... the other way. Uh, Justin Smoke still sucks. Yeah, uh, there's there's no way at all that uh, Josh Bloom will fare well against the Cubs. Uh, we're we're just screwed. So just don't like the yeah. matchup. It's just it's no good. Um, it's it's no good at all. Balls aren't going to no fall in the all. same way they did yesterday. It's it's not looking no. good. Terrible. Uh, on the topic of Urias, we've got a Patreon question mentioning him from Vinny Cornels. He's saying, with Urias coming up and looking good, uh, do you think Kira and Arcee are kind of feeling the pressure for playing time now that, you, you know, he's back up on the roster? There's a ton of infielders to kind of get into the mix. Uh, so I guess, Paul, do you feel like he can kind of push these other guys at this point? Do they need a push? Uh, I guess if I were Arcee, I would always have a, be looking back over my shoulder a little bit since they assigned <laughs> him to play his position. And if you are RCA, you should be smart enough to realize one of the reasons that you're playing right now is because he was unavailable due to wrists and COVID and things like that. Um, I, here it seems to have a very long leash. I mean, they're, they're batting him second again today. He, uh, you know, he's struggling. He, he leads the team in strikeouts by quite a lot. He is 30. Next highest is 25. Um, but they, they seem content just to let him swing through whatever problems he's experiencing and get himself on track that way. Um, but uh, Arcia, I, 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 I do think like, I don't know how he feels pressure because he, he's like the weirdest hitter I've ever seen. He, he's the one that <laughs> who, who, he gets hits when nobody else can hit and he can't hit anybody that everybody else can hit. And, um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'll feel some pressure now that his, his replacement is back up with the team. <laughs> There's no way to avoid that. That's just how these things go. Yeah, Keston's not going anywhere, by the way. He is going to be worked in at second base on basically every day he's not DHing. And so they're they're not he's not going anywhere. Like the the terms of cutting into playing time, the only way Urias cuts into his playing time is he pushes him more to DH. Yeah. Right? Like he, mm-hmm. he and Urias plays more at, at second base. But other than that, like Keston's gonna be in the lineup on basically a daily basis. Oh, yeah. It's Arcia that's the one that could see his time significantly cut. And frankly, also uh, Sogard. If he continues to be cold and not, you know, giving anything other than the occasional walk, he kind of looks like latter stage Craig Council. 
Remember that when Council basically had Boy. lost the ability to like sting the ball, but he could still yeah. take a walk and could still Be like pull for forty two Craig Council. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it kind of is what uh, Sogard reminds me of right now. Not that that's like his fate, and also Sogard is considerably younger. Right? Well, he's thirty four. What was that? That was like Council at like thirty seven, thirty eight. Yeah, yeah. It's not that. Yeah. Far it's away. not that far away. You're right. Yeah. So I mean, but Sogard did show pop last year, though. We we do have some clarity. Did you guys see Rob Arthur wrote? Yes, uh, and and Rob Arthur seems to have. Yeah. So Rob Arthur it, it has developed a very good system for doing analysis as to whether the ball is juiced, um, at least in terms of its its resist its air resistance. So you know, not necessarily the innards, but um, it looks like the <laughs> it looks like the juiced ball for the last few years was was mostly based on things like seam heights and the grain on the actual covering of it, and it was a very smooth ball that flew through the air really well. Um, Rob Arthur is very good at figuring this out. His, he's got his system worked out from doing this for several years, and he can tell very quickly um, when the ball is juiced. When it's not, this year it is not juiced. Um, the, the baseball is noticeably different. It has much more drag, and um, in addition to all of the other things depressing offense across the league this year, um, mm-hmm. you're not going to get those big, huge pop home run numbers um, that you've gotten the last few years because the ball is, if anything, less juiced than the average ball. So um, everybody that you've got, everybody you can say had some pop last year, you got to be a little skeptical of because there's a lot of people who knocked out like 20, 20-ish home runs last year. Um, that's maybe will not knock out 20-ish home runs this year, including guys like Narvaez and Garcia um, and mm-hmm. certainly Sogard as well. Um, do you, do you make- think that though? I mean... Garcia has a pretty decent track record in terms of it wasn't just last year that he was he was hitting for well, some power. The ball was juiced the last two years, though, and I'll give you he has three years of, you know, teens home runs. But it's not like he's been blasting the ball out of the park a ton anyway. Like, what is he, 2019, 18, the last couple? It's close to the years, I know. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if the ball is less juiced than normal, I think it's a lot to expect him to, to pop out. I'm going to just use 162 game numbers, but... He's probably not a 20 home run hitter. He's probably like a 14 home run hitter. Um, that's, you know, different than normal. And Narvaez especially, you know, his one big year that he has had was last year on on those 20, was it 22 home runs. Um, this may have a bit of an impact on what you can expect from him this year. Yeah, I'd, I'd be more concerned about Narvaez just because the track record isn't quite as extensive as it is with Garcia. Yep. But Garcia did have, yeah, you're right. He had some some ups and downs throughout the years, and it does seem to track somewhat with the baseball because we know that 18 was kind of a down year for the baseball. 17 and 19 were big, big fly yep. years, and those were his best offensive years power-wise. So, yeah, I think it does track a little bit, and so maybe that should be somewhat concerning, though. Who knows if this continues? Like, who knows what it's going to look like <laughs> next year? Who knows what it's going to look like? Remember last year when in the postseason all of a sudden the ball's deflated? Like, yep. who knows what mm-hmm. it's going to look like a week from now? Who knows if we're <laughs> even going to be playing baseball a week from now? It's like, you know, it's 2020, that, man. Right. It, it, right. it really, exactly. by the way, just um, this is more speculative, but it does look like baseball doesn't really have control over the manufacturing process. And no, whether the ball is juiced or not seems to be a somewhat random fluctuation based on some automation that's happened in the baseball manufacturing process. Now, I would I would go and wager that the deflation this season is probably due to some kind of conscious effort to get the ball more normal. That that would just yeah. be a guess. 
but it does really seem like um, it, it just kind of is – these things are very small measurements that change, have a big effect on the baseball. And it really does just seem to be yep, – this is how they came off the line. It's a juiced year. This is how they came off the line this time. It's not a juiced year. And they can't really control it that much. Yeah, I'd That's agree interesting with that. too, but yeah. Yeah, you you can kind of see that too. I I think you're right. There's probably a conscious effort after kind of all the backlash the last couple of years to be like, okay, maybe we can kind of control some of these, at least like you said, with the seam height or the grain on the ball or whatever. But who knows? Maybe they overcorrected. But at the same time, maybe it's kind of helped Brewers pitchers be a little bit better than we've (laughs) expected too. So uh, on that topic, uh, Brandon Woodruff looked excellent. I don't know if you saw it. Friday night's game, but he looked unhittable through four or so innings, and he was unhittable. They they didn't have any hits against him. Uh, then it all kind of fell apart in the fifth inning. I think a lot of people kind of focusing on that crazy long at bat Jason Kipnis had against him, where he mm-hmm. fouled off like seven or eight pitches in a row. Insanely maddening. Uh, and after that, Woodruff kind of seemed to lose his nerve a little bit, or at least kind of just the fatigue got to him, and he didn't even finish that inning. Ryan, is that kind of a, a sign of what's kind of keeping him from kind of taking that next step into being a true frontline starter? We, I feel like we see this a little bit with him where he cruises along and then just has one really long at batter inning that kind of derails everything for him. Yeah, and th- I think that's exactly what it is. And it's the big inning, and that's what bit him most early on last year that he kind of did correct out and, and seem to get past a little bit. But yeah, this is something that pitchers have to to work through and figure out, especially in an era where even if the ball is dejuiced, they're still guys are are building their swings for home runs, and you're looking at a situation where anytime a couple of guys you know find some you know crazy way to get on base, you're just you know a, a popped ball from giving up a three run homer, and then you know a, a good start looks bad really fast, right? So. There's there's a very fine margin of error, and guys like Woodruff have to learn how to navigate that and how to become you know like that dominant ace to get through those times. And I think that to Craig Council's credit, he gave Woodruff leash. I think he got more leash yeah. in that situation. Yeah, that's true. Like he was being given the chance to get out of it, and Woodruff wasn't able to do it, but he also didn't completely crumble. Right? Like it wasn't. He didn't give get that death blow that put the game out of reach but he also didn't manage to get out of it and had, freddie had to come in and clean it up which i was very nervous about and was like really this is this <laughs> yeah. is how you're gonna get out of a mess freddie and then- with bases loaded facing uh who did he come in first against was it bryant or i think it was Baez, I, I wasn't who it? it was i think it might have been bias yeah it might have been bias but like that was a uh white knuckle moment for sure <laughs> yeah but it ended up working out Yep. I guess, Paul, I, are you worried about like Woodruff at all going forward? or Not that worried because just... you still see the dominance. I do wonder if he does get maybe extra frustrated by those long at-bats. It did kind of bite him in his first appearance against the Cubs, too. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems like it, it maybe does something to him mentally. Not small sample size nonsense. Maybe he's fine. But um, he does seem to kind of lose the zone when he's having trouble putting guys away. Yeah. And that's really what gets him in trouble is when he starts to sort of pile up walks and not quite being able to to finish guys off and having to nibble a little bit more. So he um, definitely gets nibbly. He gets too nibbly. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think like <laughs> if, if I'm, if I'm catching him, I, I think what you got to go out there and say, say is like, 
A, just remember, um, most of the, the balls to juice this year, let guys get themselves <laughs> out. Like you, you have good trust stuff, your working, stuff, right? trust your yeah. stuff in the zone and, and knock that off. Um, because that does seem to be what causes him issues. I think he'll be fine. His stuff's good enough. He seems to actually command the ball pretty well. It's just, um, he, he doesn't give in enough. I think when giving in is worth it, when the risk analysis there would be, yeah, he might pop one on you, but you know, there's nobody on base yet. Just, just go with it. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of nibbly. Uh, Adrian Hauser was very nibbly early in the game. And yeah, did you, sure was. did you guys catch that? Craig council went out there and was very, I mean, that was a get your shit together kid. Like you need to start throwing strikes because this nibbling shit, like you don't need to do this. And then he straightened out and it, it worked. Yep, like it, it really did turn around and he was able to have a solid start after that. But that was one of the more animated. And it's interesting when in a situation like that, it's when it's not the pitching coach, when it's the manager, and he's out yeah. there, like, <laughs> very animated. Like, yep. what are you doing? We talked about this. Right, like, exactly. You could tell that, that was it. <laughs> yeah. And so that was, that was definitely a corrective thing. And it worked. And so you, you yeah. go, okay, you're like, you, that, that, is, that is good. And Hauser does not have the pure stuff that Woodruff does. And there is, I, I mentioned this on Twitter. I don't know if you guys looked at it. He has pretty big platoon splits. Hauser definitely yep. is a guy who dominates on righties and can yep. have some issues getting lefties out, which when you watch him, he has the stuff. He has the mix of stuff where he should be better mm -hmm. against lefties than he is. He needs to figure out the sequencing and how to use some of those pitches location wise a little bit better because he has a changeup that can that can fool lefties and keep them honest. Right. Like he has that he pitch. Does. He just needs to use it better and have more faith in it and more confidence in it. But it is something that bears watching. It was part of the reason why I was skeptical on him going back into the rotation last year because I kind of envisioned him as, you know, a right-handed version of Hater, where you could right. throw him in for, you know, four or five outs late in a game where you had, a, you know, more righties than lefties and really yeah. just, you know, mow through a lineup that way. But he does have, I think, the stuff. It's just a question of getting it together. And we saw it in glimpses after that initial rough start where it was really the lefties were just killing him. He gave yep. up that home run to Rizzo. He gave up the double to Rizzo. He walked Schwarber. And like later on, he came back and, and caged Schwarber with, I think it was a changeup low and away, changeup. right? It was. Yeah. And like that's was... that's the equalizer for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Council's also probably as sick as we all are of the Brewers falling behind early. Like I, <laughs> yeah, I, I I barely ever see the start of a Brewer game. It's usually when I'm putting my kids to bed. But I get the alerts on my phone, like you probably all do. And I swear every day it's it, it's whatever one whatever nothing after one, whatever brew, 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 brew opponent. One. Yes, yeah. someone has hit a home run and the Brewers are down one nothing. Like, come on, um, fix it, get that get that fixed. Um, but uh, I, I, at least they've been they've straightened themselves out lately. It looks a little better. So. Yeah, I think trusting the stuff is the big issue here. I th and you're going to run into that with a younger staff too, especially when everybody is so kind of cautious against home run balls and everything like that. And we saw that with Eric Lauer too. And he actually admitted it like when he got beat around a at least the first time he was, he was basically, you know, when he wasn't blaming Omar Narvaez, he was <laughs> saying, uh, you know, he needed to do a better job trusting his stuff because that's what he did against that in that relief appearance against the Cubs, uh, really trusted his slider, his fastball. And like, he knows he can get these outs 
it's just kind of in the moment you you know whether it's the competition or whatever you kind of forget or you kind of shy away and i think we kind of saw that with woodruff when kipnis is fouling everything off he tries to go further and further outside and then he just lost it completely and then he kind of gets scared of another at bat like that so i i don't know how you enforce that as a pitching coach or whatever but you know, we've seen that with Woodruff. We've seen that with Hauser sometimes. We saw that with Lauer. It's just kind of trusting the stuff because they they all have good strikeout stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of Lauer, thank you guys last week for holding his feet to the fire for that because blaming your catcher for what you're throwing is never okay because no. you're, you're the one that's responsible <laughs> for it. You're like, the one throwing the, throwing the baseball. It's up to you. <laughs> this isn't this isn't Bull Durham. Like that was a it's a good movie, but like, you know, shaking off the catcher, <laughs> like that's your job if you don't like what he's throwing down. And I get that <laughs> pitchers want to stay in a rhythm and they want to be able to trust their catcher, and there is like some communication that needs to happen there. But ultimately, if you're not throwing the pitch that you want to throw, then shake it off. Like that's it's your responsibility. Go so. Taylor Swift yeah. on him. Yeah, exactly. 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 Man, well, maybe Lauer can get some uh, work in with Mario Feliciano, like uh, Paul said on Twitter earlier this week. Another pitcher who's just straight up yeah, prediction. Just, just straight up prediction right there. It worked out uh, within the hour, I think, even too. <laughs> yep. uh, <laughs> anyway, another pitcher who's who's been doing well and trusting his stuff this year is Corbin Burns. He's officially moving to the rotation to, I guess, replace Lauer. He'll start Tuesday against the Twins. Uh, everybody knows how promising I felt like he was, especially the other week when they basically just let him finish the game, throw five and a third innings uh, to close it out. I guess, Ryan, do, did you feel like that was kind of in preparation of moving him back into a starting role? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they were they were making sure that he's stretched out and can can go and I think that's this is the right move this is you need to try this again you're not giving up on him forever as a starter I don't know exactly what it's going to look like I am concerned Burns is still walking too many guys which is not he is it which is, is not uh, at his peak yeah he's he's got a 6.2 uh base on ball per nine and that is way high and that's not going to work I mean you can get away with it somewhat when you're striking guys out but eventually you're going to have some home run issues and this is he's got an incredibly low BABIP. It's got to be incredibly low because he's only giving up 4.5 hits per nine. So like you got to you got to not give those free passes and get that straightened out. It's very concerning when you just look up and down at like some of the other guys who are similar to him that have, like um, if you if you are uh, if, if you compare him to like Lindblom, who has sort of similar um, strikeout and walk per nine numbers like Burns is Yes, he's striking out a few, little bit more, but Lindblom's had better control of the zone. He's not walking as he's still walking too many people. But um, with I, I do worry about that with Burns like facing a long a you know bigger set of batters and going through the order a couple more times that those walks are going to start to burn you a little bit more um, when you start to see guys a couple more times. So I am concerned about that. And of course, all of this is small sample size stuff. Um, mm-hmm. He he may just clean that up by the nature of starting versus relieving. He may. Um, have more leash to, uh, to, to uh, you know, when you come in out of the pen, you're often in a situation where um, you got to work around guys or, you know, it, the situation's different when you're starting. It's a whole different thing. He might clean it up, but it's a worry. Um, and, you know, it's especially worried with Burns, who has a history of giving up home runs when he puts guys on base. When he's not missing bats, things can go south pretty quickly. So 
Um, I hope this experiment does work. There is, are there's some bad stuff in the numbers behind the scenes there, but I, I'm still pretty optimistic about him. He has looked good. And I think in the starting role that he, he may work himself in the zone a little bit more than he has just trying to blow guys away, striking guys out in relief. So um, quietly optimistic, but a little bit worried too. He's going to need to show better command in the zone, particularly yeah. too, like, because he, he has been, as you're pointing out, he has been not pounding the zone as much as he did last year, which actually really got him into trouble. Normally that's a good thing. <laughs> right, we like yes. it when pitchers pound the zone, but he was probably doing it too much, especially considering where he was putting the ball. But yeah, yeah, it's that's going to be a really important thing to watch over this next run of games is to see where he is for that. So exactly like like you were guys saying the the walks are really kind of uncharacteristic for him because the knock on him for years is that he just <laughs> lived in the zone constantly right so uh, i don't know if it's just like what paul was saying he's just trying to throw everything to try to get guys to strike out and they're just laying off i think uh you know he's also faced some some more patient lineups too so that's also could probably true be throwing off the, yeah. the 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 small sample size and such but I'm not terribly worried about him, but uh, you know, I think for the Brewers' sake and for his sake, this this works out. Uh, he'll get a tough assignment the first time out against the Twins again. So, oh boy, uh, fingers yep. crossed to see how that goes. That the meantime, is brutal. I hate playing the Twins. Yeah, I'm so annoyed that they're the cross division rivals. Like, I, I wish it was someone worse. <laughs> Absolutely, like everybody in that like they granted. The, the everything went wrong for the Brewers in that series, but they looked like a lineup that could really do a lot of damage in the AL this year. If if they can ever avoid playing the damn Yankees in the playoffs, I think they'd be set. So, <laughs> yeah, in the meantime, though, uh, even with some shorter starts by the Brewers in the last week or so, the bullpen largely has kind of stepped up to the challenge and kind of carried them, especially in Chicago. You know, we talked about that Friday night game where Peralta and Devin Williams looked phenomenal. Uh, I think it, it kind of feels like they're kind of settling in now, um, especially with Devin Williams there. And that kind of leads us to another Patreon question from Asila Tam. He's asking, who's been more impressive in limited action so far, David Phelps, Devin Williams, or Eric Yardley? I guess, Ryan, what's your take on that? I'm a huge Devin Williams stand. So, yeah, that's, for me, the answer. That changeup that he throws is straight It's ridiculous. Up it's filthy. <laughs> I mean, it's great. I, and he really, like, that gives him the ability to miss bats both against righties and lefties, which you know it's a good changeup when it's missing same side batters yeah. like nope. that. Like, you know that, because it's got a, a ton of movement on it. Like, not all changeups have that kind of uh, movement. And, man, he just absolutely destroys guys with that pitch so i'm big believer in that he is missing an absolute ton of bats and he isn't walking too many guys at 4.7 when you're when you're running a 17.6 strikeouts per nine like yes. <laughs> he leads can, the team it's incredible you can afford a little bit you can afford a few walks and you know 4.7 this is again all very small sample but you can afford to walk a few guys but at the rate at which he's missing bats he had he just seems calm and collected and within himself and can handle those situations we'll have to see how he deals with uh trickier situations he's going to need we're going to need to see that but i think we've got a late inning stud in devin williams yeah it looks that way that changeup is just nails uh pitching ninja did feature that pitch um mm -hmm. in in that day's analysis um if you want to go see it with overlays and things like that um i will actually i'll go with uh 
with Phelps on this. Um, his, his strikeout number is not quite as impressive as Williams. Um, he's 11.7, which is still fine. But nobody walks fewer people than uh, David Phelps. He never gets himself in any trouble at all and has good command of the zone. His whip is 0.783. It's only behind Hader on the team. And he's been just a good, rock-solid, can-do-anything pitcher. Um, he's gone multiple mm-hmm. innings many times. He's gotten them out of jams and just never gets himself in, in any actual trouble. Um, if you're going to score off Phelps, you're going to have to hit your way to do it. And that's a, a difficult task as well. And, you know, he was a bounce-back um, acquisition by them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Seems, seems to really be panning out. And it's always nice to see that happen, both for the guys themselves and for the team. So, um the, the good the good thing here is Yardley, I guess, is the wrong answer. He's fine, but there's really no <laughs> there's really no wrong answer to this question. They just have a, a really stacked bullpen that's really pitching outside of Kniebel really well right now. Phelps really kind of helped picked up pick up some of the slack that that they've seen with Kniebel struggling early too. He's kind of yeah. provided that you know off day closer we saw kind of Saturday where they threw him. Up. Was it the ninth he picked up uh, with you know Hater and everybody else unavailable? He he kind of provides that you know second day closer yep. ability when when they need him to do that too. So uh, he's definitely been a valuable addition for sure. Yeah, and the thing with Yardley is you can see a way to use him that is very valuable because he can he can soak some innings for you, but he can also use him in leverage. If you have a situation where you feel reasonably certain that the other team is going to leave their, their right-handed batters in there and you can get him an extended run against righties, the platoon splits aren't showing it yet, but you could just see it from yep. what he is as a pitcher. That he's fun to watch. I, I love the delivery. It's, well, yeah, it's great to... and it's it's going to be tough on righties. Yeah, he's reverse Alex Claudio, so which is totally exactly. Uh, who exactly. I did, by the way, I did finally see Alex Claudio record um, multiple outs. So that that's off. <laughs> Your streak's broken. My streak is broken. <laughs> He got a save even. He was yep. pretty solid in that. Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't really, he didn't give up any hits, right? And it nope. was just that they were able to advance that runner over from second, which, yeah, he didn't have anything to do with putting that there. That was just the thing. <laughs> and you don't necessarily ex- expect him to be like a big strand guy unless it's getting one out to get like out of an inning. Like mm-hmm. he's not a guy who's going to strike people out and absolutely dominate hitters, but he just did what he needed to do, which was, get the ball in play and get the outs like it it worked out well enough for that absolutely well speaking of Devin Williams change up uh, we got another Patreon question this one from Darren Jones he's asking uh, with Devin Williams change up on his mind what are the top three pitches on this staff he wants pitcher and pitch type (laughs) Uh, Paul you seem to like this one What what do you think Okay, so that the changeup is definitely one of the three of, of the answers. Um, I I just am trying to decide what what hater pitch I want to go with because <laughs> I, I think I'll go with his slider. It's just a hard one to pick because there are bad versions of all of his good pitches. Like his fastball is great, <laughs> but occasionally yeah. he straightens it out too much and leaves it in the zone. And when he can't locate the slider, it's bad. But when he can, that pitch is unhittable. So I'll I'll take that. I'm not sure what I go with as a third. Um, Woodruff stuff's all pretty just good across the board. Mm-hmm. I, I might be tempted to go with just a Yardley, you know, submariner type pitch uh, on that front. But you know what? Uh, Freddie Peralta fastball. N- nobody knows where yeah. it's going, including Freddie Peralta. And um, that's, <laughs> that's part of what makes it so good. That thing moves like crazy. So I'll, I'll go with those as my three. 
So I definitely want to go with the hater fastball along with the Devin Williams changeup is like a given here. So, yep. I, but the hater <laughs> yeah. fastball sets the other stuff up. The reason that the, the, that the slider can be really effective for him is because guys have to respect that fastball. And that fastball is so hard for guys to, when he hits his spots with it, it's really tough for them to do anything with it. Even though it's not like yep. in this day and age, like he's thrown at 94, 95 mostly this year. Guys still aren't catching up to it. They're not making, you know, any real sort of contact off of it. It's it's really tough. And I think it it has to do with the arm angle it's coming out of the deception that it causes. Guys just don't pick it up that well. Yep. And when he's locating it where it's supposed to be, it's an absolute filth pitch. I also uh, think that if he didn't have his hair, that his pitch, his fastball wouldn't be as good. Uh, this is my my conspiracy theory. Yeah, is that, is that the the long hair like flying when he delivers it actually adds deception to it? He's screwed when he goes to the Yankees. Then yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the old. Oh, who is the guy who uh, on the the Giants? Uh, Carl Hubble like intentionally wore like a long sleeve shirt so that and like would would uh dye it white so that guys couldn't pick up the baseball coming out of his oh wow out of his hand and it's like the ball would just go by and they wouldn't even see it i think it was i think it was hubble maybe it was maybe it was matthewson but it was one of the one of the giants pitchers from the uh polo grounds days but oh wow so i i think i need to check this i'm i'm quickly looking this up to make sure i want to say corbin burns uh uh, cutter because I think mm. it's been important for him this year in terms of taking yeah. that step forward, but I need to make sure that it's actually like, that's not just to get me over pitch to set up other stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. That it is actually good. And it, nah, the fan, I don't know what the numbers slow. will say, but it's looked like a good pitch for sure. Yeah. He's, he's been able to dot the corners with it. Uh, kind of fool a lot of guys because they're not expecting it to cut the way that it does. And it's kind of the in-between between his his uh, good fastball and his good slider, right? So it, I think it's kind of doubly effective that way. Um, I, yeah, I don't know what the numbers are, but I guess my answers outside of the Devin Williams changeup, uh, definitely uh, Freddie's fastball. You know, it's not 98 miles an hour or anything. He can, I think that's what makes it impressive is he throws it like 93 and they're still cutting through it. They're still way ahead of it. Like, I don't know if it's deception sort of like hater or part of i guess not knowing where it's gonna end up either like, uh, but that facetiously but i do think the lack of predictability of it is a big part of its success like usually guys have yeah. spots that they hit and you know you you can see that in tape and get prepared for that like this will be low and away this will be and he really attacks the entire zone all over it right. high, high and away high inside high middle like it, it's all over the place and you, there's no way to prep for it. It's impossible. There's no pattern to actually prep for it. So that's one of the reasons I really like it. It has movement to all parts of the zone. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. There's, there's some wiggle to it too. Uh, and it's just really hard to scout. And then of course, you know, me being the big Corbin Burns fan, I am the, the slider still gets me uh, when it's, when it's on and he can locate it, it, you can, you know, he can do, he can backdoor it. He can sweep it away from, righties it, it's just a really solid pitch when he wants to throw it and then i guess dark horse candidate i mentioned this with uh, adrian hauser's start against the white Sox, where he just kind of mowed through them i i'm a sucker for a 12-6 curve and that start <laughs> especially he was able to to drop it in there and uh it, you know it's not one of his more frequently used pitches but 
you know, the two, three, four times a game he uses it, it definitely catches guys off guard. And, and I really appreciate that too. Yeah. So it looks like Burns, the cutter, there seems to be some disagreement as to what's a cutter and what's not for him between oh, yeah. Brooks and I was uh, going to say, you're, you're probably going to run into, is it a 90 mile an hour slider or is it yeah. an actual cutter kind of thing? You know? Yeah. There does seem to be some of that going on, but it does also seem to be a pretty effective pitch and he has oh, been good. throwing it more in the month of August. So like, I, I yeah, I'll, I'll stick with it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we mentioned Josh Hader, uh good fastball, good slider. He got his first four save or four out save opportunity here on Friday. We mentioned, talked a little bit about that, looked a little shaky at times. Uh, but that kind of brings up our good friend, Jay Google on Patreon. He's asking, should the Brewers be looking to trade Josh Hader or anyone else right now? Or because teams are not looking to take on money with the Brewers, not get equal value back. Kind of an interesting question because, hey, wouldn't you know, we're about two weeks away from the trade deadline now. So... <laughs> Uh, interesting question here, I guess. Paul, what are your thoughts? This stupid season. Um, I, I guess I, I'm always at the, you should always be looking to trade everybody to some extent. And I, I kind of lean yes, just because this season's so weird. Uh, I doubt we'll look back on it as being that legitimate. And um, at some point, Hater will turn into a pumpkin. Um, he's, you know, he's, there's some, you've seen what he looks like when he starts to get bad. He gives up all those bombs and he, Loses the zone pretty frequently. They also have a, a pretty good bullpen depth situation right now. So there's that too. And he's expensive in arbitration. He's kind of whiny about arbitration. Not that I blame him. I would also be whiny about arbitration. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, kind of, yeah. Uh, if if you can get like a, a mother load for him, I would, I would always do it. That said, as much as I, uh, I personally at least have complained about the Brewers this season, they're they're sort of in a playoff spot right now, depending on what happens with the Cardinals. <laughs> right. Um, right. So uh, the other, like you, you do want to go like kind of fully loaded into this thing. If you actually want to win it and they're, they're right in it, their schedule is going to get easier going forward. So um, I, I, it's one, I think it's one of those things where if, if you get blown away by an offer, yeah, you do it. But it, um, if you would just want to go continue to go fully loaded with your Austin bullpen in a short season, that's fine too. Yeah. I think you ride this out for the long term. I don't think you try to trade him just because I don't know what you're going to be able to get. We tried to talk That's to Carlos a little bit about that. I don't know what you're mm -hmm. going to get and how confident are you going to feel if you're if you're trading Josh Hader to get a couple of, you know, prospects? How confident are you going to feel that the other team is giving you the information that you need to make a good decision on those guys and that they're not selling guys that they all of a sudden see big right. down arrows on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there is, we should mention, cause we brought this up on the, the minor league pod as well, but there, did you guys see the information sharing thing that Kylie McDaniel put out there? Yeah. Oh, I did not. So teams are going to be sharing. You can opt in to basically sharing your data and your data and video from your alternate sites. And mm -hmm. If you want to get other teams' data and uh, video, you need to give yours. Yours, okay. So, and it, it sounded like about two-thirds of the teams had already opted in. Though there's they're separating data and video because not all teams have both at their alternate sites, apparently. That's weird, okay. but yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, or the, the amount of stuff they have isn't, you know, some teams have more stuff, so the, yeah. there's variance in that. But that is... 
the the big hope with that was it was going to facilitate some trades because teams could get some right. data and get some information and feel good about trading for you know a prospect or whatever but I don't know how much that's even necessarily going to help. You're still taking a lot of it on faith and it's still going to be a lot of like uh, trading for uh, players to be named later. So my, yeah. my mm -hmm. big thing here is I don't, I just don't see them moving him because I doubt they would feel like they could get true value for him. I agree with that. And actually everything I said about the Brewers where how much do you care about winning this season is true for everybody else. Like, Normally, you're going for that one extra bit of war to push you over the top into playoff money, right. actually winning a World Series. This season is weird and compromised, and there's so many more playoff spots. I doubt teams are just going to sell off a bunch of good prospects to to drive them over the hump here. It's just very unlikely to happen. Uh, so you're, I think this is just not a good seller's market. It's just not going to happen. It, maybe teams will just you know brush up their ends of their bullpen, but nobody's gonna. There's not gonna be star trades. If there are, it would be a bizarre thing. It seems like a buyer's market, which I really like for Stearns because he yeah. does such a good job of finding guys that like off the radar. So I bet you they they make some moves, and we maybe see maybe not to the extent of Drew Pomerantz being so awesome last year, but <laughs> yeah, stuff like that where they they make a move and people are underwhelmed by it at the time and then oh lo and behold like it's really working out well mm -hmm. something off the yeah. radar that ends up popping. yeah i'll bet you're right yeah this will be a weird trade season for sure i guess personally i would be surprised to see anything that's not just like salary dumps yeah. at this point you know if teams expiring kind of like contracts and like, salary dumps yeah. yeah expiring contracts and salary dumps just to kind of clean up the books if you can in this <laughs> weird ass year uh, I guess on the topic of uh, trading and all of that, Stephen Kurtz has a Patreon question asking, <laughs> are the Brewers tanking? Should the Brewers be tanking? Uh, I'll just note that this this was sent a few days ago before the Cubs series made things look a little bit better. But I guess, Paul, what are your thoughts? Should the Brewers be tanking? No, don't tank. It's Frankly, in this season, it's going to be hard to tank. Um, like even, yeah. if you even if you tried to tank in a 60-game season, there's no guarantees <laughs> you wouldn't make the playoffs. Um, it, it's... Like, look, look at the Marlins, um, a dysfunctional organization full of bad players that got themselves infected by going to strip clubs. And, you know, allegedly, just, allegedly and, and they're just out. They're awesome so far. So you, you, you shouldn't do that. It's a bad idea, generally speaking. And it, all you would be doing is making your team even more boring to watch. So you can't, you can't be doing that. Don't tank. Well, especially if you're in a position like the Brewers are where you're competitive and you're you're right there for like a playoff spot. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're not tanking. You're not doing that. Now, if you're the Red Sox and you've had your team decimated by injury and like your best starting pitcher is hurt and your other best starting pitcher is like dealing with heart issues because of COVID, like that team can kind of justifiably pull the plug. And they've done this. Actually, the Red Sox have, have been really adept at this in managing to get like top 10 picks in these bad years where they randomly have it. And then they're like winning world series in other years, but like yep. in the bad years, that kind of flip flop variance uh, can have some value, but the brewers aren't in a position to do that right now. There, there's no reason that they should be trying to tank or that they would be tanking. That's not, that's not how they're constructed. That's not no. Yeah, no, if Brad was here, he'd, be making another pitch for his idea of if you're going to suck during a season, why not make it 2020? Uh, but I think kind of what we Paul and I and Brad talked about last week, it's going to be hard to really truly tank, especially yeah. when you've got the pirates out here winning a dozen it, games this year. Good luck out tanking the pirates. Yeah. yeah. 
tricky business. Exactly. Thing is when, you, when, when you tank, you've got to, you either have to like punt on a bunch of talented players so that they're not playing on your team, or mm-hmm. you need to uh, be just terribly managed. And it would be conspicuous if the Brewers tanked. Like they would actually have to yeah. do things so different than they normally do things that baseball would be like, no, nope, you don't do that. You can't do that. Like you, you can't be putting you know, Corey Knievel out there with the bases loaded every day. That's not, we see you stop. You're it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's literally we trying see. to lose. That's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. I, and especially even after that God awful twin series, the Brewers were still the eighth seed at that point in yep. the playoffs. And I don't know about you guys, but if it's a one, eight matchup Brewers Cubs, I feel decently good. good about I'm the happy. brewers yep. taking three out of five right like oh that was top of three. this weekend it's only three games oh that's right yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Only three so, games I, like so they I, already I, won that series see I assume so, the Cubs like, are I'm not terrified of this prospect if they thought about it at all so yeah yeah so i i just think the playoffs this year are just gonna be so random you're gonna be able to get in with a record two or three games under 500 mm-hmm. i think so there's just really no reason to tank in my mind uh Moving on, another Patreon question from Asila Tam. Uh, he's talking about Rob Deere. Says his recollection <laughs> of him from his playing days where home runs were nice, but he struck out way too often. If he was playing today, would he be appreciated more, or is he appreciated the appropriate amounts? I guess, Ryan. <laughs> well, people wouldn't hold the strikeouts against him the way that it was like held against him. And even fast forward like 15 years from that, remember how everybody thought that like Jose Hernandez was just a horrible player because of all the strikeouts when he was actually yep. really like yeah. probably the best player He's on an that all-star. team. He was like legitimately a good player on that team. He just happened to strike out a lot. And that was, you know, that was fine given the other stuff that he did. Yep. I So I think that, yeah, people would be less, you know, put off by the strikeouts. But Rob Deere was kind of, he was a weird player because the whole profile just was strange, even <laughs> like in that, in that era, especially, but even now, like you look at it, like a, a guy who's hitting, I, he did, he did take a bunch of walks. So that would, that would be, he would be more appreciated now because of he that, didn't take, so. a, he didn't take enough walks though. Um, I mean, you're looking at a, a walk rate for his career. It was a 220 career hitter with a 324 on base percentage. Uh, all right. That's so, okay. I and mean, when you get a hundred point uh, split there, that's you're doing a pretty decent job taking walks. It's the, not. He's the, not. Uh, what's his face out in Oakland? The uh, 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 oh, Gene Tennis. It's not Gene Tennis. Uh, yeah. But, okay. Like he's you know he's taking a decent number of walks. Yeah. The. He's such a weird player that the batting average is so low and uh, the power is so it'd be interesting to see what he would look like with like modern training techniques and uh, <laughs> with with like maybe a, a, a launch angle revolution swing because Rob Deere was a he was a good power hitter, but, you know, he was never like a super great power hitter just because of the lack of contact. So I, I really don't know. I could see him like being out of the league by lack of contact. Or by like completely changing his game around and like being Javi Baez in the outfield. Like there's there's a lot of Joey Gallo. Yeah. Yeah, like Joey Gallo <laughs> basically. That's a good call. Um also Rob Deere was a pretty good defensive player. It, like we don't have metrics for back then, but he had a really good arm in right field. And um so that might it's not like he had no talent out there. He wasn't just like a big doofus who hit home runs. He actually could move a little bit, uh he could throw really hard. It's really hard to say. Um, I, I don't think you'd ever be like a superstar. That's, uh, it just didn't make enough contact, and I don't think it's it, it's too hard to fix that problem. 
but I I could see him I could see him being a little bit better. So he led the American League in strikeouts four times in his career. Yeah, he did and that. he in nineteen eighty eight he led the American League in strikeouts with one hundred and fifty three. 153 <laughs> led the league that's black ink legit black ink on his uh his page yep. and i am floored by that that is that's wild and he only did it in 135 games Yikes. <laughs> wow. leading the wow. league in strikeouts with your yeah you didn't even play in 20 plus games like wow that takes some effort for sure it does, it does. <laughs> All right, so we got a couple more questions uh, to get through here, and they both kind of deal with uh, the St. Louis Cardinals. So sons of they're bitches. finally returning. Sons of bitches. Uh, almost ruined the MLB season. Finally returned to play over the weekend uh, with their first of about a dozen doubleheaders uh, left to play. Uh, kind of run through. They're going to try to play, I guess, as many of the 60 games as possible. So that means they've got 53 games scheduled in a 44-day stretch. <laughs> I think... Uh, <laughs> Fangraphs ran the numbers, and I think it was something like 10.8 innings yeah, played per was, day at this was. point. So um, it, that it's just ridiculous. They've got 20 games left to play in August, and we've literally got, I think, you know, a couple of weeks left. They're going to play 30-plus in September. Uh, we'll see how many of these actually get in, but it kind of leads to a, another Patreon question, this one from Jeremy Holbrook. Uh, he mentions the million double plus. Uh, million double headers the cardinals have to play he's asking what should there be a mercy rule for the double headers this year like if you're up by 10 runs after five uh should they just call the game at that point i guess paul what's your take uh, i mean kind of yeah i think that's a they won't do that but a good creative idea the one thing they can't have with these is like a bunch of random extra inning games or a bunch of things right. to drag out a lot. Like they got to crank through baseball here with the cardinals uh, i know the other thing jeremy raised is like the Cardinal, we should blame the Cardinals a lot for all of this. I mean, we, we mentioned that they almost ruined baseball. That's true. Um, they have hurt the Brewers significantly by basically causing Lorenzo Cain to opt out. And all of these doubleheaders also hurt all of the teams that have to play the Cardinals a lot um, to, okay. to make up games. It compresses the schedule for other people, too, like the Brewers. So, like the Brewers, yeah. Yes. So um, uh, I would like to see like something more punitive happen to the Cardinals on a day-to-day basis just for causing all of this trouble but i do think it's a smart idea to have something like a mercy rule so that you don't blow out like their opponent's bullpen in in garbage time um that's that would be nice that's a good start so yeah i'm on board with that plan i'm pro yeah i mercy rule in general for this season seems like it would be fine you're already doing seven inning double letters you've already broken baseball yeah, you're Just you're already it, yeah. yeah you're already but I don't know I I guess it's not that big a deal I'm just I want to vent my rage for a moment here at the fact that they came out yesterday in that first game in the first damn inning and put four on the board <laughs> after not having played in two plus weeks and they put sure four did. on the board yeah. and I'm just like and it was against Lucas Giolito I'm just like go to hell what what are you doing <laughs> I mean this is not how any of this is supposed to work you should not just like roll right out of you know your your quarantine and just start slapping the ball around and and it just it infuriated me so much it made me so angry and it's yeah. screw the cardinals especially because we know like the marlins apparently it was less they were less violent the cardinal stuff seems to be much more like they really were doing some stupid shit and that's why that 
stuff. I mean, not on the level of the stupidity we saw in Cleveland this week, but yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, Does Dan's nephew act? needs to. Stop, uh, somebody needs to stop talking. Yeah, get yeah. yeah get off Instagram, kid. Like, just stop. Yep. The media is evil. Oh yeah. God. Yeah, it's your teammates that are calling you. His it was literally his teammates coming out and saying that you're irresponsible and you need to earn back our trust. And he's like, media, media, media. No, like literally, this is your teammates. Like, you don't blame the media for you being a selfish jerk and mm-hmm. violating the rules. <laughs> Uh, yeah that's annoying it'll be annoying when the cardinals rack up 12 wins this week uh but oh yeah well because they're they're going they had a doubleheader on saturday they have a doubleheader on monday they have a doubleheader on wednesday (laughs) right yeah 12 wins here i just i just don't know uh i guess if they could keep up that pace eventually the arms are gonna fall off and and all of that but well did you see the other annoying at this point sorry did you see the other stupid thing that's happening as a result of all this the cubs now are going to play all 10 of their games against the Cardinals at Oh, Red yeah. Blade. All 10 yeah, of their games. Yeah, that's right. I joked that the Cubs aren't going to play a road game this year. Yeah, yeah. The, Cubs, the Cubs basically just like don't leave town. Between that and their games against the White Sox, like they don't have anywhere to go. And like their trip to Milwaukee, like, <laughs> yeah, they basically just don't leave town. Which... They should just rename the Cardinals the Chicago Cardinals at this point. Just Yeah. They're going to play yeah. most of their games there anyway. Let's just bring them back. That, wasn't that the <laughs> NFL team? Didn't they start in Chicago and then move they to did, yeah. St. Louis? Yeah, and absolutely. The 20s or whatever. Yeah. Uh, all right. One more uh, Cardinals question from Mad Max on Twitter. He says, with that entire fiasco and the sheer impossibility of them making up all of their games, yep. why doesn't MLB just push the playoffs back two or three weeks to ensure time for the makeup games? He's wondering, what's the rush to finish the season on time? Play the World Series in December if you have to. So I guess, Paul, do you want to tackle that? I mean, obviously, there's like health reasons with COVID that they want to get this done as soon as possible. But yeah, um, I, I actually probably I think they probably should maybe build in another week of buffer there. Personally, I, I think that they uh, one thing I don't understand about how they've handled this is I thought the entire point of having the taxi squad was precisely that if somebody if a team got infected and they had to take a bunch of guys out, they had another team right. there to play. And then that apparently right. wasn't that wasn't the plan. Um, the, the plan was just to cancel games and get yourself in a, a tough spot. So um, I, I don't know what they were doing there, and I don't think they've thought this through as well as they should have. So, um, but they don't want this dragging into the snowy months. Um, people play out. Uh, they should have probably anticipated all of this. And you've heard some discussion about maybe bubble playoffs at this point. Mm-hmm. That's been floated. Um, if they do that, I think it's almost a no-brainer to push the season off a little bit to get games in. But at some point, cold weather hits cold weather cities, and nobody wants to be playing baseball when it's like 15 degrees outside. That's that's terrible. Um, that's the big driver here. Yeah, they'll say things like they don't want extra exposure for COVID, but I mean, the exposure only happens when you're playing against other teams and traveling and doing all that stuff for the most part. Otherwise, you're just living your life at home like you normally do. So um, uh, I, I think maybe if they do go with the bubble idea that they, I could see them pushing it back a little bit because they'll be able to play in controlled environments then. But uh, uh, they, they, the driving force here is not playing baseball outdoors in snow. They just don't mm-hmm. want to have that happen. Yeah, and uh, it's exactly what I was going to say is if they do decide to go to the bubble and there is more and more discussion of that, and I think they're really working on contingencies to make that happen because the owners really have an incentive to play that postseason. Because, they sure do. Oh, yeah. Like the players, the entire reason we're here right now is the postseason contract. Honestly, right? Because they they need to get that money, and really, like that's what they fought for for the expanded playoffs. And the players 
have every incentive one just because they're competitive and want to win so there's that but there's also the the fact they're going to get a bigger share of the postseason money than they ever have before because they were able to bargain that so yep i think that that would be the thing and if they do that yeah i think what you do is if you're gonna go bubble if that's what the plan is going to be i think yeah you absolutely not only do you do like extending the, the season out a little bit and give some wiggle room on the back end but you take a break before the postseason you take two weeks yeah. off and guys go into the bubble there like they they bubble yeah. in and then they are there like and tested and all that and i i don't think we've seen the numbers particularly i think arizona would be ideal for this if you're going to start the playoffs in mid-october say you know like october 15th october 20th yeah i i think it would be perfectly fine to have it in arizona and i think you could make that work especially if it's only 16 teams and at that point Mm -hmm. you are still going to have to have somewhat of an expanded roster because you're going to need to potentially have injury replacements but you're way cutting down the number of players you're not going to be at 60 anymore you're going to be at like you know 35 38 something like that maybe maybe the 40-man roster something more in line with that that is going to be uh, taken into the bubble and it all becomes much more manageable especially because you're talking about at most people being in a bubble for a month that's yep. that's really not that big a deal mm-hmm. they can guys can handle that and especially if it means potentially a world series ring on the other side of it and you can do it in right. arizona because the weather is going to be nice there's plenty of places to play plenty major league facilities places where these players are you know are are playing in spring training games all the time so yep. it, it would be fine i've seen some talk of like san diego too considering that park is built right next to a hotel or attached to a hotel so the yep. players wouldn't even really need to leave the premises uh but also arizona yeah you, you know you've got everybody's training facilities there basically they could stay in shape all that stuff too mm-hmm. uh, so it'll be interesting to see for sure so that's all we have for the questions this week. But as promised, we wanted to play you a part of the interview Ryan and Brad did with Carlos Colazo of Baseball America. So uh, take a listen. Here's a taste of what you can get with the Minor League Extra. And today we're thrilled to be joined by Carlos Colazo, the uh, MLB draft expert for Baseball America, joining us to talk about the Brewers draft, the farm system, the recent upsetting rankings, and how the Brewers might have uh, had one of the better draft strategies of all the MLB teams for this year. So Carlos, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here, guys. So we're, we're going back in time. It's feels like it's been about 14 years now, but it's only been a couple months to June. uh, When you were doing your draft coverage for baseball America, um, I have to imagine that COVID and the shutdown had to have thrown a, a pretty big wrench into things. What sort of adjustments did you make in your coverage for that event? Yeah, it was it was an incredibly big wrench that was thrown into everything. Um, like everyone else, we, we dealt with it uh, maybe in a different way than, than other people, but it changed up the process. I think it was more impactful for scouts than us specifically because in some ways – having scouts sitting around and just watching video is beneficial to me because they can be on the phone more frequently with me when I'm calling them and trying to harass them about information on players. So in that sense, it was actually nice because typically in the spring, you try and get scouts on the phone. And if you get them for 30 or 45 minutes, you feel pretty good. During the shutdown, when nothing was really happening and they couldn't go out and scout, you get some scouts on the phone for a couple hours and really break down players at a a really in-depth level. Um, at the same time, 
we always rank 500 players uh, for our draft coverage. And so getting updated information and accurate information on the players who are further down the list who either scouts didn't get a chance to work down their prep list and actually see them this spring, uh, or in the case for many high school players, they never got to play at all. That obviously made it a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, so you're dealing with either more out-of-date information than we would typically be dealing with at that point, or you're dealing with information that comes with uh, bullpens and different workouts, uh, not game looks. So stuff like that, those are the challenges. Um, but it definitely was a bigger challenge for the scouts who actually had to try and find some way to evaluate these players for their teams. Now, kudos to Baseball America. You guys still did your 500. How does it feel? Uh, normally you have, what, 10% that don't go. This year you only had a third on the list that could go. Uh, like, does Did you feel like a little taxed by that effort, knowing that now they had cut it down to a ridiculous five rounds? Well, I was definitely hoping for 10. I think all the guys uh, that I talked to on the team side, um, the advisor side, all of those people and myself wanted 10 rounds just because, I mean – I don't know what it's going to look like in hindsight now, but we thought the 2020 draft class itself was one of the deeper ones that we'd seen in recent years. Certainly it was the strongest draft class in terms of just total depth that I've covered here at baseball America. And I've been doing it since 2017 involved in the, in the draft process. So that's disappointing. The fact that we won't really be able to see kind of how the, the strength of this class compares to some other, the stronger classes in recent draft history, just because a lot of these guys are going to go into the, 2021 class or the 2022 class so there's that trickle effect that we'll have to worry about but yeah we still cut down on on some of the reports normally we do state lists which is reports on players outside of the 500 in various states we did away with those because we felt 500 for an 160 player draft was a little bit of overkill as is next year we'll get back to that and it'll be fun to, to have a more normal draft hopefully how many guys did you have go out of the top 500 out of the 160 uh, I think of the 160 that were drafted, 13 were not ranked in the BA 500. Okay. I think that's the number. I would have to double check, but I'm pretty sure it's close to that. So we feel good with that number. I think it's around 90%, a little less than 90%. Again, w when it's 160 picks and you see some of the guys these teams are taking that you're like, man, we really didn't have in our 500, you feel a little bit bad. But I think it just speaks to how the consensus can really deteriorate quickly when you work down lists. Uh, for different teams. There are just so many different processes. And sometimes we just miss guys. So we try to avoid that every year. But Well, and some of those guys were more for signability, right? For teams to get. For sure. The... For sure. There are a number of those guys. I would say probably a majority of them were guys who were savings type players. But there were some. I mean, the Rangers took a guy in the second round who they signed for decent money. He was a guy who would have been on our state list rankings, but we didn't have him in 500. I think, I think the Rangers in general had a pretty risky draft, and they took a number of players who were more hideout types. And sleeper types but at the same time they clearly liked him and valued him i think they signed him for more than a million dollars so that's definitely not a, a money saver pick by any means so you guys recently released an article this was under your byline i believe uh, available to ba subscribers on the website that gave the brewers the most value in the 2020 draft relative to where they drafted uh mm -hmm. so it looked like most of that was garrett mitchell being ranked yep. sixth on the big board and falling to the 20th beyond the diabetes factor how do you explain that fall yeah, Mitchell, first of all, Mitchell's one of my favorite players in the class. I think I was consistently one of the highest people in the industry on Mitchell. I got to see him back in his high school days, and he was a very well-regarded prospect out of Orange Lutheran High School in Southern California, which is one of the better programs in the entire country and has been 
for a long time now. Uh, he's just such a toolsy player. Um, he's a guy who has, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you have already read the scouting report, but he's got top of the scale speed. He's got a plus arm. He's got legitimate plus plus raw power. Uh, the question with him has just always been how much of that power can you get to in game? I really do believe that he has the bat to ball skills that with a change in approach and with some, um, with some practice and, and some training with pro development and, and really an intent to hit the ball over the fence. I know with UCLA, he really didn't have that role as a hitter. They like to bunt a lot. He needs to put the ball in play and move runners runners over. He really wasn't ever trying to hit home runs kind of every at-bat like the major league game. So I do think with a bit of a swing tweak, he has all of the skills to be able to tap into some, some of that power moving forward. And I think he has all of the ability to be an outstanding player defensively and on the bases as well. I think throughout the entire process, Mitchell is one of the more polarizing players with teams because there is no clear way. I still haven't heard from a team that has a clear way to kind of assess the risk that the diabetes, that the diabetes offers. It is some risk. How teams weigh that probably varies club to club. Uh, and at the same time, his kind of track record of not hitting for that power going back to his high school career, I think he actually hit better statistically in college than he did in high school, hmm. which depending on how you think of it could be a concern or could be really encouraging. But I believe that he's kind of got all the ability to tap into that really impressive tool set. And no one that we talked to denied that the tools are special. I'm pre pretty sure everyone thought they were 1-1 one, one caliber tools, a left-handed hitter with that kind of power, that speed, center field ability. It's just a matter of questions of, is he going to get to that consistently? Is he going to be able to play regularly with the health concerns? And I think for the draft, it's either Garrett Mitchell or Austin Martin at number five were, were my favorite pick of the entire draft. So I thought that was exceptional and i think we weren't the only people who had garrett mitchell stuffed in our rankings so i think it's probably a pretty common thought thanks to ryan and brad for that and a reminder you can get that full interview along with every other minor league extra podcast for just five dollars a month by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash mke tailgate speaking of our patreon page we do have a couple new patrons to shout out uh so ryan who we got so we had uh, earlier this week, J.J. Lambie came in and joined us, as well as Steve DeRozier. I think we got the pronunciations awesome. of those right. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. Thumbs Hopefully. up. Yeah. As All I right. always say, as I always say, you get the shout out. The uh, pronunciation is not guaranteed. <laughs> uh, but uh, thanks to Steve and J.J. for signing up. And hopefully more of you uh, decide to join on after listening to that interview. Uh, in the meantime, if you have something you want us to talk about, we put out a call for questions every week on Patreon and on our Twitter account at MKE Tailgate. Just reply to that with your question, or you can follow each of us individually, send us questions. Paul is at Badger Noonan. Brad is at Brew Crew Blue, and I'm at James L. And don't want to forget Ryan. He's at RD Top as well. Still have the notes from last week here, so I forgot to add Ryan in. But Ryan is at RD Top. <laughs> give him a follow. Uh, and if you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, anywhere else you do listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave a review to help us find or help other people find the podcast rather. In the meantime, thank you all for listening to this week's episode. We covered a lot. Stay well, and we will see you next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.